Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. This week, your sponsor is me. If you wish to help caffeinate this podcast, then you can use the link in my bio at buymeacoffee.com to supply me with a coffee or two or three. Depends how generous you feel. This podcast takes a lot of work, a lot of energy, and that's supplied by my caffeine intake. And if you wish to support the podcast, then please donate me a coffee. Paul Maka McVeigh, welcome to the Development by David podcast. How are you, my friend? Well, how, how did you hear Maka? Because that normally only only comes from people who I've played with in football, or generally the ones who call me Maka. <laughs> I've been in all of the Norwich um, forums, mate, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a teaser of who you are. For the listeners who aren't familiar with you or aren't in the football world, who is Paul McVeigh in 2022? Oh my goodness, he's literally saved up the hardest question for the very, very start. How do you how do you explain who you are as a person? What angle do you come from? What uh, what characteristic do you want to share with uh, with the public? Um, and, and of course, everybody wants to put their best foot forward. So you try and give the best qualities that you are of of as an individual. But I suppose that question is is so multifaceted and has so many layers to it and a short answer would be i am somebody who tries to enjoy their life as much as possible every single day whilst trying to share their mental map with other people who didn't always have the the privilege to be involved in a high-performing environment. It feels like that motivation stems a lot from your background and the people that you're probably surrounded with when you grew up. Let's talk about life before football. What was life like growing up in West Belfast? Well, the the, the context of that, what life was growing up as as a kid, and I know everybody has a different type of background, but my background just seemed to be very typical and I'm sure you may have had something similar where you were in a working class background you were going to school every day with your mates from your street you were walking to school you were coming back home again if you were in my house then your mum would make sure you did your homework before you were allowed back out on the street to go and play football and then you went and played football on the street with your friends every day all day until it was dark and then you could call back in to have your dinner or to go to bed and that's essentially what i did for for 16 years and and some people might sound that that's very boring and and that's you know a little bit narrow-minded the only thing you did was kick a ball around but it was so much fun i loved it and i suppose the the context of the 1970s and 80s and, and actually just early 90s before i left belfast in in 1994 to go and join tottenham hotspur was that there was there was a civil war going on and that there was constant bombs going off on a regular basis generally car bombs was the the way that normally happened there would be a a bomb um, inserted underneath the the underside of a car and then of course whoever was owned that car whenever they started the engine it would explode and and of course it was horrendous um, and caused devastating effect across all of the the areas of of the north of ireland or northern ireland whatever way you refer to it but from my side i was just a young kid 
playing football in the street and then you score a goal and do your little celebration and then suddenly there'd be this just massive explosion go off and everyone would stop and look for a second thinking is that on our side or is that on their side and then you carry on playing football it's funny how you prefaced it with like you might relate to some some of my um early childhood i don't relate to that part that doesn't seem like it ever happened throughout my childhood did that become almost like a regular occurrence did you always become used to the turbulence uh in your local area i think human beings have the capacity to tolerate anything whether that's good for us or really really devastating or destructive and it's interesting i was i was speaking to um one of my clients who works for invesco and his wife's uh he's a us he's from the us and, and his wife's is a physician surgeon and he was talking about how he speaks to his wife and because people are essentially in her hands in life and death scenarios and that she has to deal with her role in the surgery that she just has to do a job and she just has to go and make sure she does her job for whether it's whatever she needs to fix and that is very very challenging for people to have someone's life in their hands but i think as human beings we need to take some way of taking the emotion out of it so that you don't go in every single time that that surgeon's going to do another surgery and think oh my goodness this person could die under my watch because i think that would just be too much stress for one person to take so i think what human beings are really good at and it's if it's not a surgeon it might be someone who's in the military or the army who are going into war and they have to take the emotion out of it that they're going there to do a job because if you were to sit and analyze that you're going into a war zone and you're probably not going to come home or you might not come home then i just don't think people or human beings would be able to cope and i think that's really what happened growing up in belfast and northern ireland for people there was bombs going off every day people were getting shot every day there was you know just horrendous violence going on all around you and if you stop to analyze it i think you'd be a complete quivering mess and so because you don't analyze it you just think it's normal you just think it's normal soldiers walking past you with guns and tanks driving down your street but of course it's only whenever i come over to england and and suddenly arrived at tottenham hotspur in 1994 and walking through the leafy suburbs of enfield in north london and and going why is there no tanks driving down the street and why is there no soldiers with with m16s walking past you and hitting you over the head with them just because you looked at them wrong and that was when I suddenly had that realization that it wasn't normal to grow up in Belfast, but it was my normal. Given such horrendous scenes that you witnessed as a child, how did that manifest into your mental resilience as a, a footballer and as an adult? Honestly, I don't know. It's probably human beings are so complex and complicated that I don't know what effect it had because, of course, I might say, and just to give this a little bit of um, of a bigger picture of this, the reason why I'm not sure is is just because of I went and studied my masters, and because I was working with two Premier League clubs and working with the players to try and help them from a mental performance perspective, and because I was using my knowledge of playing in the Premier League and playing international football. But actually, I thought that having the academic underpinning of what may help these players alongside my experiential learning, I thought would have been a real, really powerful dichotomy of understanding of performance. 
And so whenever I did the masters, the one thing it really taught me was to understand cause and effect. That because one thing happens, then this is the outcome. And what it taught me was that it's incredibly difficult to make that link because there are so many other scenarios and so many other situations and so many other factors that impact that outcome that it's really difficult, but it's very easy to assume. So I could say I have amazing resilience because I grew up in a war zone and that's why I went on to have a professional football career. But of course, lots of people grew up in a war zone and 99.99999% of them did not go on to have a professional football career. In West Belfast, was there a nurturing culture for football? Did it feel like a pipe dream or did you have the ecosystem around you to support you to go on and pursue a footballing career? Yeah, I think I was very fortunate. Uh, I played for two teams. The first team that I joined at 11 was a team called Lisburn Youth, and I was there for five years. And there were already players who had been at Lisburn Youth had gone on to play professionally. So, for instance, my first time going over to Spurs when I was 11, I went over as a, on trial with another young lad called Stephen Robinson, who was three years older than me. And because Robbo was already at Lisburn Youth, and then two years later, he went over to join Tottenham Hotspur in the same youth team with Saul Campbell and Nicky Barmby and Darren Caskey and all these you know, incredible players who went on to have amazing careers in international and, and Premier League football. And because that was only a couple of years older than me, and then, of course, as I started going through, and then I got the 16, and then I went and joined a team called St. Oliver Plunkett in Belfast, and then in my team, in St. Oliver Plunkett, we had a guy called Phil Mulryan, and Phil was going to Man United the next year, and he was coming in as the class of 94, two years after David Beckham and Ryan Giggs and the Nevilles, etc. So it was very much a case of we were seeing people who were doing what we wanted to do, and the pathway was there that you could go and do it. And of course, for St. Oliver Plunkett, we also had Jim Jilton, who'd already gone over to Liverpool, was you know playing in the Premier League with Sheffield Wednesday and Ipswich. So we had all these role models that we could see and it's very much a case of because we could see that then we definitely thought that it was possible it was just very different when i got there do you have many memories of turning up to hotspur at the age of 11 what was it like for an 11 year old um turning up for his first day at camp well it's, it was it was incredible because was, this was i wouldn't say it was necessarily my dream because yes everybody plays football and, and probably has a little, as you call it, a pipe dream thing. Oh, you'd love to go and play professional football. But I don't think I was waking up every day going, I want to go and play in, in the English First Division as it was then and getting into the Premier League in 1982. But I did look at it and look at the FA Cup finals and all these different matches you were watching on TV and thinking, that looks amazing. I wonder what it would be like. But my first day at Spurs was, was just so crazy because I went over on trial in the summer it was actually just after the 1990 World Cup. And I remember going to, <laughs> to White Hart Lane, walking in, seeing the first time, seeing the, the big blue Rolls Royce with the number plate of AMS1, you know, Alan Sugar's number plate when he, when he owned Spurs at the time, sitting outside the reception, walking into the reception. And the youth development officer was a guy called John McCurr. John McCurr was a, was a really famous player for West Ham. And, but it was his dad, John McCurr, was the youth development officer. And he said, Paul, listen, we don't, um, we're not able to bring you to training today. We need you to do an advert out on White Hart Lane because uh, the Sun sticker album needs a little kid to come and play in an advert with Paul Gascoigne. Would you like to do it? <laughs> and I was like, 
what? Because <laughs> at the time, Paul Gasco was my favorite player. You know, he was the biggest star in the world. He just starred in Italia 90. You know, he cried on the pitch. He was, honestly, he was just a complete superstar and my favorite player. And he said, can you do this advert with Paul Gasco? And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I'd, yeah, I'd love to, love to. And he says, okay, so um, we just need to go and get you into your England kit. And I went, what? <laughs> and he said, you have, you have to wear an England kit. And I said, John, I'm from Belfast. If I go home with an England kit, and this is going on national TV, honestly, I'll get my legs broken. I get beaten up. I said, I can't do it. And he goes, Paul, you have to. We don't have anyone else. And I said, honestly, I can't do it. And he said, John, it's not worth my life. I'm serious. I cannot do it. And he went, we'll pay, we'll pay you £200. And I went, where do I sign? Give me that England kit. Give me on that pitch. <laughs> it was the... It was the first time that probably the mercenary in me came out. And uh, yeah, I was the start of my uh, career in football of going to the highest bidder. That is really my story. I think that must be my trailer clip, Paul. Uh, you, you, you speak a, a lot about in your book about your um, inferiority complex. Did you feel that even at the age of 11 and in your teenage years, whilst at Spurs? Um. I don't know if I felt it when I was younger. I think what happened was I probably got, when I was eight or nine, I didn't realize that I was probably better than the other kids around me. And probably even by 10, 11, more or less before puberty hadn't kicked in because I was always the smell, smallest player in the team. You know, he said the smelliest player in the team. I did wash, but I was also the smallest player in the team. And it was only whenever puberty kicked in and everybody just started to grow and get stronger and suddenly I had to stubble and I'm still this little prepubescent, you know, teenager who didn't have any kind of strength or and my speed was just, like, you know, just fading away and compared to these men it felt like I was playing against. But I still felt like I could compete all the way through 11, 12, 13. But it was only when I got 14, 15 and started going for trials for the Northern Ireland team and the schoolboy team until eventually... I was standing next to these guys who were essentially either five nine, five ten, six feet, and I'm probably five foot four at the time. And I was just couldn't compete. And it was really whenever the Northern Ireland guy at the time told me that um, he didn't select me because it was too small. I think that was really the start of it because there's never been, you know, any kind of impediment before as my size, always being the smallest player in the team, it didn't make no difference. But actually, as soon as the Northern Ireland guy said, "I think you're too small for to play at this level." And that was like, uh-oh. But I still managed to still compete and wasn't always the best player, but it was still good enough. And then at 16, I went and joined Tottenham Hotspur, as you mentioned. And the the biggest impact in a really negative way was training with Jurgen Klinsmann on my first day at Tottenham Hotspur because I just saw what world-class looks like and I saw what the best of the best and a World Cup winner and, and we just signed him after he'd starred in the 1994 World Cup in the USA that I'd just watched on TV for four weeks beforehand and suddenly training with this guy and just seeing how good he was and how hard he hit the ball and how high he could jump and it just almost magnified this probably little seed of an inferiority complex and then once I got there at 16 it just exploded and lived with me for the next three years. So the seed of your inferiority complex was when you were about 14, 15 for the under-15s Northern Ireland squad, and then that was perpetuated by meeting, I guess, a superstar player uh, shortly after that. Besides overall physicality in terms of um, robust physique, what else do you think separated you from Jürgen? 
what did you see that he had that you didn't? Well, I suppose he, he had everything that a top class international athlete or, or footballer needs. You know, he had the technical skills and that was probably my strength at the time. I was technically pretty good, but I didn't have the physicality and didn't really have the maybe even the mindset compared to what I needed. So to see what Jurgen was doing, then to see his strength, to see his speed, to see the way he was and then once I started watching him playing for Spurs and, and just seeing how modest and humble he was and he was also one of the nicest guys but then you start seeing all the rest of the first team like Teddy Sheridan and Saul Campbell, Nicky Barnby, Darren Anderton you know just these incredible incredible players and they were all superstars on the field and on the newspapers and magazines but then whenever you saw them in the change room or in the canteen they were just the most humble lovely guys and I just couldn't get my head around why they were the best players and everybody loved them but they were the nicest people and they'd come and sit down next year on a Monday morning and Teddy would come over and sit there and go, oh, wee man, what'd you do at the weekend? Did you have an night out? Did you get a kiss? So, you know, all these little things that you'd probably get from your older brother. And he's the best player in the Premier League. He just won the Golden Boot. He was just about to star in Euro 96 and obviously went on to win the treble with Man United. And the superstar that he was, to be as kind and as nice as he was, I just wasn't able to bring those kind of two pieces together in my mind because again my mental map my frame of the world was you know if you were a really super big superstar then you were kind of looking down on everybody when and then when I saw what these guys were doing I saw it was the complete opposite. I love how you seem to have embodied that because you there's a quote in your book and it's something along the lines of I'm absolutely convinced that what enabled me to sustain a career playing football for nearly 16 years, play in the Premier League, represent my country and build up an abundance of happy footballing memories was the fact that I was football smart. It's so nice to hear that you initially didn't have the mindset but then went on to kind of adopt that, embody it and then have such a long, a career with such great longevity. Do you think it was that initial interaction with these players that made you believe that you had to be football smart to have a rewarding career in football? Ironically, no. Uh, and I, I would actually say that the the guys that I mentioned were all incredibly, you know, top professionals and amazing footballers, but I wouldn't necessarily call them smart. I didn't know them well enough, but I wouldn't have I wouldn't have put them into the category of smart. What happened was from my side was that as I was starting to try and learn my trade, adapt to the physicality and and that was the biggest difference as a 16 year old kid who didn't have the the strength and maturity to compete against men every single day i was just getting beaten up and outrun and, and outpaced and everything that was happening was just such a struggle so it honestly it's you look back now and you think amazing 20 years of you know playing professional football but what you don't see and <laughs> i just had the feeling this morning because i've just been in my pt session and when I got there, I've been traveling, speaking for the last couple of days, and I got there this morning at half eight, and I turned up with about 20% energy, and I was so tired doing the session, and so I've just come away from it, and I feel exhausted, I feel, you know, horrible, my, my legs hurt, my body hurts, all the rest of it, and that's what it was like every single day of training, because you're competing with the best athletes around, and I was nowhere near the best athlete, so I was coming away feeling, A, demotivated, because I can't compete, and then start the next day, with even less energy to try and then go and push yourself. So it is the most horrendous experience and feeling to try and compete with people whenever they're better than you in every single way, technically, physically, mentally, socially. 
and then they got up to the next day to go and try and do it again. But of course, what I didn't realize that I wasn't competing them for them on that day. I was actually competing with them in six years time whenever I was you know, 22 and playing 40 games a year for Norwich City and, and playing against them because by that stage, I developed my man strength and developed my physicality. I'd also completely reinvented myself from a psychological and, and mindset point of view. And that was all as a result of reading one book when I was 17. What was the book? The book was Awaken the Giant Within, written by a guy called Tony Robbins, Anthony Robbins, who's a huge personal development guru in America. Who, if he, He's actually just released a, a documentary on Netflix called I Am Not Your Guru. And it's it's such a great insight into him because he calls himself a practical psychologist, but actually he's a self-made billionaire. He's that good. He's just worked with some of the most incredible people, probably from, you know, seven different presidents through to the CEO of Sony and, you know, the US Navy SEALs and, and everyone in between. And he's just such an amazing guy. And I read this book at 17. My friend passed me the book. And when I read the book, it just changed my life. And because it had this, it had this practicality of, okay, let's just assess where you are right now. Are you happy with what you've got? Are you happy with your lot? Or would you like something better? Do you want to improve? Do you want to do more? Do you want to have more? Do you want to be more? Do you want to go on this journey in life? And it was just so inspiring reading the book. And I remember just coming away from it going, this is, this is the best thing I could ever have done because it just took the blinkers off what I thought was possible in life. And from that point forward, I started setting goals for myself. I started setting inspiring goals for myself. And, and this is the interesting thing with the work I do now, to be able to go in and share a framework of goal setting with people. Because most people have you know goals and targets and KPIs and different objectives for their work. But whenever you ask people, you know, who actually has any you know well thought out, well considered, well constructed, and this is probably the key difference I find, David, with most people, written down if you have goals that are written down but for your personal life and the majority of people that i come across don't and because they don't have them i'm not surprised that they're thinking oh i'm not happy about this in my life i'm not happy about this this is not where i want to be i don't have this because most people aren't getting up in the morning thinking this is the life that i want to create for myself and i'm going to think about it and work on it every day and because a lot of people take the let's say the view that these goals are almost too much or they're too difficult or they're too hard to achieve and from my point of view the way that i view goals is this is the reason why it gets me up in the morning because i'm thinking if i set out what my goal is and if it's inspiring enough and if it's you know enticing me enough to want to get up and work my socks off every single day so that i can create this life for myself as i go through my life then this is what gives me such huge motivation every day to go and try and be the best that I can be, but also just to break down barriers because that's what I have felt like I've wanted to do all my life. And it really started with the preconceptions that footballers were stupid. What a powerful message. And I couldn't think of a message that rings truer than that. I think a lot of people act out of motivation, but not discipline. Um, my practice is that I write down my goal every single day, but I write down three things I can do that day that work, like, that I can do that works me towards that. I think motivation is like, if you think about a theme park, 
you have like one of those drop zone rides. Do you know the ones you strap into? It goes up, it goes down, it sometimes stops in the middle and drops again. That's motivation. You don't know when it, you don't know when it's up, you don't know when it's down, you don't know when you're dropping, and you don't know when you're escalating. However, discipline's like a roller coaster. Yes, there's ups and downs, but there's a predetermined roadmap that you must follow every single time. I think one of my favorite quotes is a goal without a plan is just a wish. So people will have these grand goals and have moments and flurries of motivations where they get things done. But without having discipline and working towards your goals every single day, you won't live true to that identity and ultimately you probably won't reach that goal. I think goals are great, but having a discipline and a plan underneath it is the foundations for, for, for you to achieve those goals essentially. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and, and this is why when it, since 17, I've been setting goals for myself, not just for the next six months and a year or a couple of years, but you know, one of the one of the things that I did after reading that Tony Robbins book at seventeen was my goal changed very quickly from being I want to be a professional footballer because at the time I was just in the youth team earning twenty five pounds a week, so I you know was not a professional, essentially an apprentice is what we were called at the time, and my goal was going from I want to be a professional footballer to actually. I don't just want to be a professional footballer because a professional footballer, I could get a one-year contract. I've got to become a professional footballer. I've ticked that box and move on. But actually, it very quickly changed to, I want to have a long-term career in professional football, which is very, very different to being a professional footballer. And then I started to add these sub-goals in. And then I realized that I wanted to learn, sorry, not wanted to learn. I wanted to leave professional football injury-free because I was looking at all these older players and, and, you know, God bless them, people like Gary Mabbitt, who just had the most incredible career at Tottenham Hotspur. You know, he lifted the FA Cup, just played in some amazing teams for Spurs over the years through the 80s and 90s. But to see what he needed to go through every single morning on the physio table, just to get him strapped up, to get him out for training, to then put him through what he did for the matches. His body was just, you know, so battered and beaten over what he's put his body through over the years and i just thought wow that that looks brilliant for him but there's no way in the world i'm ever going to be doing that i don't want to be leaving professional football and barely being able to walk and you know having knee injuries and, and hip replacements and all these other injuries that that have been synonymous with football over the years so from 17 i decided my goal was i want to leave football injury free so what was my first step towards that I started doing yoga at 17. I started watching a video. I started doing my yoga every single morning before I went into training. I do my yoga. And then eventually, what is it like 15 years after that, 15, 16 years after that, I left professional football at 32 and I had one muscle injury in nearly 20 years. Now, I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but in my mind, I have a feeling that the yoga played a huge part in that. I think it did too, but the na- naivety in me wants to say, nah, it's definitely because he was rough and tough because of his background. That's why he left injury-free. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll tell you that, because, because if you if you ask Phil Moran the same question, Phil had so many injuries. Phil had like, you know, two broken bones in his legs. His back was a complete mess. He had to take painkillers just to get on the training pitch every day, you know, but luckily Phil's a priest now, so it's okay. He's got, he's got God on his side. So he's uh, that's a whole <laughs> other story that you might want to have a conversation with. <laughs> well, one of my mates who are uh, a huge Norwich fan, he asked me to ask about Phil and what, what your thoughts are about him um, leaving football to become a priest. Well, just anybody who's listening to this who who doesn't have the context, 
Phil and I grew up in Belfast together. Obviously, I said earlier we played in the same team for the last year before we left in '94. He joined the the David Beckham's and the Gary Neville's and the Nick D. Butts and Paul Scholes etc. over at United. And Alex Ferguson then went and made his debut for United. He actually in the start of the treble winning season of 1999 for Manchester United, that great Manchester United team, he scored a hat trick in the first game of the season against Birmingham, and then Norwich City came in with a bid for him. And he went to Norwich because essentially Alex Ferguson sat him down and went, Phil, listen, we've got a bid for half a million for you. And your two people, as he was a winger at the time, the two people that you need to try and get in front of in my team are Ryan Giggs and David Beckham. <laughs> so I think you might want to go to Norwich. So he did. But then Phil and I went and I actually ironically joined Norwich City about four months after Phil did. And then we had seven years together having the most incredible times of playing playoff finals and Premier League and everything else. And then after a couple of years, probably just before 2010, Phil decided to stop playing. I stopped in 2010. But then Phil just had the biggest U-turn in his life and his career. He was obviously struggling with different things in life, as lots of people do. And because he'd always been a, an Irish Catholic, he decided to reconnect with his faith. And then he decided to become a priest and... You don't just decide to become a priest one week and then you become a priest the following. He had to have multiple conversations with the bishop just to decide if he was serious about joining the priesthood. And then once he was allowed to start training, it's a seven year training course, virtually the same as being a doctor. And Phil went from leaving school at 16 with maybe a GCSE or maybe two GCSEs to going and studying two different degrees in philosophy and theology and then moving to Rome and then he learned Italian then he learned French then he learned ancient Greek then he learned Latin and now he's heading up the Dominicans in in Ireland and he basically looks after all of the new seminarians who come in who are all just joined as new priests so it's just the most incredible story ever. Let's take it back to your first foray at Norwich City. Did you score no, it was your, you scored in your debut for Tottenham Hotspur, didn't you? Uh, my home debut for Tottenham Hotspur. So yeah, only I played, only managed to get three games for Spurs. And first game was away to Aston Villa. Um, God rest the soul, Hugo Ekiog was playing centre-half, kicked me all over the place. I'm sure he won't mind me saying, looking down on me. Kicked me all over the place at Villa Park in, in my debut. And I remember in the first probably minute, he came in and went right through the back of me, straight down, studs down the back of the legs. And I got up and I was in a big heap on the floor and he just came over and he's like, welcome to the Premier League. You know, he knew it was my debut. But then, of course, Hugo and uh, Gareth Southgate were the two centre-halves on that day. So made my debut against the England managers well and and just two amazing players up against like Dwight York scored for Villa that day and just fantastic team but then my next game was away at Liverpool and and come on for the last 15 minutes against Liverpool and that fantastic Liverpool team of the late 90s with Fowler and McManaman and Michael Owen etc um I actually not make Jamie Redknapp and then he wouldn't shake my hand as we walked off the pitch. So that was the start of the 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 egos in football. And then on the home debut against Coventry, I managed to score uh, whenever Teddy hit the post with a, with one of his free kicks, and I nodded in from about two yards, which is my type of header. <laughs> oh, I love it! I love it. So tell me the transition from Tottenham to Norwich. It was very simple. I got thrown out by Spurs. <laughs> they said uh we man you know what back to the height again george graham just said 
I just don't think you're big enough to play in the Premier League. And because obviously George Graham liked very tall, physically imposing players in his team. And he said, you know, you just don't think you're big enough to play in the Premier League. So I managed to, and that was probably one of the first times I needed to learn to be self-sufficient and be proactive and take things in my own hands. Because if I sat there and thought, right, being released from Spurs, I'll just wait for a club to come in, buy me or take me or whatever. I probably would have been waiting a long time. So what I straight did straight away was I just got on the phone, just started speaking to people. Who can I call? Who do I know? I happened to know Bran Hamilton, who used to be the Northern Ireland manager and then got the job as Norwich City manager and, and phoned him up and said, Bran, I'm leading Spurs. Any chance you can come up and have a look at you? And he's like, yeah, come up, come and come for a few days. Went on trial after a couple of days, obviously being there with the likes of Phil Ryan, which was brilliant because we were, you know, knew each other so well and Phil was the best player on the team at the time but then Craig Bellamy was there he was just about to sign for Coventry for six million but we had just really really top professionals people like Ian Roberts who scored over 200 goals in his career Matt Jackson had won the FA Cup with with Everett Malky Mackay had gone on and, and you know hundreds of games and three promotions back into the Premier League so just really top players but that trial period just felt like I was a proper player. I wasn't a youth team player coming through into the first team with all the big boys. I was actually a proper first team player. And once I signed, then I was accepted as a first team player for the rest of my career at Norwich. That's fantastic. And you joined when they were, they weren't in the Premier League, were they? But you joined them and excelled into the yeah. Premier League thereafter, right? Well, they were definitely, Norwich were in the championship just below the Premier League and, and struggling, I think, is the best way to put it, the kindest way to put it. You know, we were getting probably 10, 12,000 fans turn up for matches down the bottom of the championship. Nothing really happened. And then we just sold Craig Bellamy, which was a big blow because we got some money, but obviously lost our best player. But the problem was, is that we didn't really have any kind of, I don't even know what the word is. I don't know whether it's quality or just any momentum, anything to get us up and running. But for some reason, we had a season where we gained, nearly got relegated. And then the start of the next season, which was the 2001-2002 season, I just felt like that was the time where I was able to compete. You know, I talked about that strength that I I lacked when I was younger. I felt like I'd built myself up in the gym enough that I could compete with anybody on the field, no matter what size. I could outspeed, out, sorry, I'd sprint people, you know, I could outrun people in terms of the the stamina you needed just constantly because that's all you do in football. You literally have a ball for probably two minutes out of 90 at your feet. So all you do in football is run. And if you can't keep up with that pace of the running, it's like, like being Mo Far. You just need to be able to keep up with that circle of runners who can stay at that speed. And if you can't stay at that speed, you're not even allowed on, on the field. And that's what it was like in football. You had to have a certain level of fitness, athleticism just to get onto the pitch. And then if you're any good, then you might be actually make a difference in the match. But that started that 2001 season. I remember making my my first appearance for for Norwich against Man City. And it was Kevin Keegan's team at the time. And I remember coming on for an injury for one of our, one of our players. And I come on left wing and just had a really, really good game. And then scored the second goal in a 2-0 win. And that really just set the scene for the next... 40 games, played every game, scored 10 goals, got into the playoff final. We lost on penalties, got into the Premier League, and then there was just that momentum year on year. Next year, I was top scorer for the for the whole club. The next year, we won the Premier League with Peter 
likes of Peter Crouch and Darren Huckabee coming and joining us. And, and then we're in the Premier League playing against the Invincibles of Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, you know, the Man Uniteds of Roy Keynes, Rio Ferdinand's, Paul Scholes, Ronaldo's. Just, it was just the most amazing, amazing experience. But of course, to try and compete at that level just takes every single sinew in your body firing on all cylinders every single day because it is that tough and that competitive. Whilst in the Premier League, what does the day in the life look like of a Paul McVeigh or a professional footballer? It's the same as if you were in the Championship and it'd be the same as if you were in the in the youth team at Spurs. This is what is probably enables players to very quickly move through the pathways of, of football clubs because we're all pretty much doing the same thing. You're getting up early, you're going into training, you're working so, so incredibly hard. Obviously, there are certain days that you'd have a, a, an easier day, like if, if it's before a game. But the majority of the time, especially 20 years ago, whenever they had less understanding of the, the sports science and, and the output of each player, everybody was running a lot. We were lifting lots of weights. We were trying to stay as professional as we could while still being young men and still being in your 20s and still wanting to go out and socialise and still wanting to have a drink and still wanting to you know, go and chat to a girl on a night out and still wanting to be with your mates. So it was all of those things, but the priority was still, I want to be a professional footballer and I still have to live my life. I wouldn't say as a monk, so to speak, but you definitely had to sacrifice lots and lots of things so that you can maintain the level of athleticism. And that's what it just keeps coming back to, David. The challenge that most people have is they might have a bit of technical skills, they might have some mental strength, they might have a little bit of an understanding of the game, but to bring all of those areas of performance together and then try and excel in every single one of them every single day probably goes back to what you mentioned about goals. What I view and what my philosophy is on goals, that it's it's not an intensity thing, just don't like, you know, if you want to lose weight, be brilliant with your food and diet and in the gym for a month, that's great. But that's an intensity thing, whereas I think goals and, and especially being a, a professional athlete in, in what can only be described as the most competitive and ruthless, literally ruthless people would stand on your face, stand on your head just to get in front of you in the match. And that's why I feel like it's it's just so challenging to do that and, and that's why it was it took so much. So just to sum up this little bit of piece of the story, whenever someone asks me now, twelve years later, do you miss football? I'm like, Hell no. Hell no. It's it was the single hardest thing I needed to do every single day. And the fact that I don't have to get up and push my body to those limits every single day is very, very nice feeling. I love that. What an insight, mate. I really, really wanted to know that. I want to talk about probably the most asked question that I received when I told people you were coming on the podcast is the game away at Old Trafford. You played against Ronaldo. We see the photo of you and him jostling for the ball. It's such a fantastic photo. I'm sure you scored uh, on that day. Mm -hmm. One of the questions I want to ask about that is, and we kind of touched on earlier, when superstars are on the pitch, how your performance changes? I read in a book um, called The Formula by a physicist called Barabasi, and he looks at the effect that superstars have on performance. And he looks at, um, I think, Tiger Woods as an example. When Tiger Woods was playing, 
those below him and in, in, in the seating would play marginally worse, as if but when he was um, off the course they would play much better. Did you see that transpire into the world of Premier League, or would you say it was the opposite, where you felt to felt that you felt they need to play and at a greater level because there were superstars on the pitch? It's a really good point. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's I don't think there's a, it's not binary. I don't think there's an answer one way or the other. I would say that it at times it had an impact where it definitely made you up your game. So for instance, I played for Northern Ireland away in Spain against that incredible World Cup winning Spanish team and European Championship winning Spanish team of Xavi, Iniesta, Raul, um, Casillas was in goal, Michelle Salgado, Puyol's the back, you know, Joaquin on the way. They just, you, you just thinking, oh my goodness, this is probably for me was, well, I'll, I'll give you the, the club version, the Premier League version in a second. But against that, as an international team, was for me the best team I'd ever played against because, you know, that whole ticky-tacka that had started, you know, the Barcelona away from that 2000 sort of year onwards, 2004-2005. There were so... It was literally like men playing against boys of the Northern Ireland team. We were just couldn't compete and they had world-class players in every single position, Champions League winners in every single position, and, and we didn't. <laughs> and, and to be able to play against those, it was almost out of fear that if we don't massively up our game, we are going to get our arses felt so badly. This could be like 15-0. And in the end, luckily, it was only 3-0. <laughs> but if it was a, a game based on possessions of stats... It could have been 15-0 because I think I might have actually had one chance in the first minute of the game. Keith Gillespie went down the right-hand side, went past the fullback, and he whipped it in. And it was a great ball just in behind the defence. And I was coming in from the left-hand side. And I was just about to come in the back post, headed in. And Michelle Salgado, who actually has gone on, I'm a good friend with him now. He was, you know, like, I think he'd won about six uh, La Ligas with Real Madrid, about four or four Champions League titles, played in that Galacticos team with Zidane and Ronaldo and Beckham and all those guys. And just as I was about to head it in to give us a 1-0 lead, he just lunged and grabbed on my shirt and just spun me round in the air just when the referee didn't see it. And I just couldn't get my head on the ball and I must have missed it by a millimetre. And that was the only chance I had. And I don't think I might not have even got another touch of the ball after that for the rest of the match because they were just so supremely better. So that was one way. But then we had the opposite whenever we were in the first couple of games of the Premier League and just after the the United match, which I think was our first away game of the season when I scored. Um, either the next game or the game after was a home game against Arsenal, who at the time were still the Invincibles. So they'd just gone through the whole season, the pre previous season, unbeaten. And then when they came to <laughs> when it came to our game, it was so funny on the Friday, Nigel Worthington, our manager, reading out, you know, the kind of the player reports, because you'd always want to know who you're playing against. And in the championship, you wouldn't always know the players. Mostly you would, but you wouldn't always know every player. But then in the Premier League, it was like, okay, in goal, Jens Lehmann, uh, World Cup winner, uh, six foot five, Good shot stopper, good with his feet. 
<laughs> right back, Lauren, brilliant on the ball, really fast, great overlapping, great defender. Left back, Ashley Cole, amazing <laughs> defender, great going forward. You know, <laughs> centre back, Sol Campbell, like an absolute tank machine. Centre midfield, Patrick Fiera, World Cup winner, brilliant get in the box, great in the air. Manuel Petit, Mark over Mars, Ray Parler, up front. Dennis Bergkamp, yeah, he's pretty decent on the ball, so don't give him space. Oh, and he can put the ball in the top corner from 30 yards. Oh, and lastly, Thierry Henry, six foot four, runs like the wind, strong as 10 men. Don't give him space. Don't stand off him. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you're just sitting there almost in tears going, oh, my God, how are we going to play against these? I think the boys brigade against them. <laughs> it was. It was like the Alamo, honestly. And the start of the match, and this was the funniest thing. In that, at the end of that team meeting on the Friday, the manager went, blah blah blah, six foot four, runs like the wind, ten as strong as ten men. And then at the very end of all this whole report, he went, but Henri, not very good in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I suppose you know, the little the optimist in me is like, oh, I suppose that's a good thing. Let's let's try and get them to put crosses into the box, stay nice and tight and compact, get them to put crosses in. He scored two headers against us. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I would say when you're playing against the Invincible, it probably had that effect that Tiger Woods had, where basically I was going up, and because, unfortunately, and I really mean unfortunately for me, I was playing right midfield at the time, right wing, and Thierry Henry, you ever see the way he always used to pull out on the left-hand side? He'd always drift, drift to the left so he could get the ball running and cut curling in the top corner. And so, honestly, it was it was just probably the scariest moment of my life on a football field where I was doubling up with our right-back, Mark Edworthy. Henri pull out to the left, get the ball, and then he would just start walking. But we all knew that if we went and tried to close him down, even though he's only walking, that he'd just knock it past us. So you can, like, jockey him and stop him from moving past you. But really, he's looking at you and the body language is, <laughs> don't come near me. Don't come near me, because if you do, I'm going to knock him past you. I'm going to embarrass you for speed. <laughs> so I'm, like, standing off going, I don't want to come near because he's going to embarrass me if he knocks him past me. But everyone's going, Marka, get closer, get closer. I'm like, you get closer to him, man. I don't want to get closer to him because he's just going to make a fool out of me. <laughs> And eventually what he did was he would put it in, curl it in, someone else scored. So it's like, you literally oh. can't win when you're against the best in the world. Oh, Paul, my, my jaw is aching from laughing at that. Uh, I need to move on to a, 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 in sequential order. Tell me your best or funniest locker room story. Everyone wanted to know, to know about that. Oh, my goodness. Ah. <laughs> oh. That, that the reason why I'm kind of stalling and and trying to you know I'm almost like I'm racking the, going through the files of the memory banks to try and work out what story a I'm allowed to tell b someone might not get put someone might not get put in jail for for me telling publicly and c just trying to decide and decipher which one out of the three million different stories I could take talk about and share. Um, Okay, just really quick one. This was just a typical, and it wasn't a locker story. It was multiple locker stories. 
we all had lockers at Norwich City. You know, it was really lovely changing room. We all had our nice big lockers, um, except for Phil Moran. He literally just, his looked like a like a complete dump, like a wasteland. It was disgusting. And this was how bad he was with money. At one stage, he'd lost his Jacob watches. Jacob watches, these massive big watches, takes up your whole wrist, costs about £70,000. He bought a comeback from Vegas one year. And he honestly... He couldn't find it for about six months. And he's like, I can't believe I've lost my Jacob. I can't believe I've lost. Anyway, £70,000, lost his watch. Turned up in his locker because he had so much other shit in there. He didn't even know what was in there or what wasn't. But we all had these nice lockers. And we all had a key. So you can kind of keep people out from you know anything that's important in there. But for some reason, every single day, someone was going around cutting you know, with scissors people's socks so you wear your normal clothes in the training ground but whatever socks you wore whether it's your white socks your black socks blue whatever someone kept cutting the toes off you know so every time you wouldn't know and then you just change and chatting and you're getting out of the shower and then you suddenly sit down to put your socks in your chatting and then you put your socks and your your sock comes all the way up to your knee because there's nothing your toes aren't there to stop it you know so it's that stupid little joke so we're like every day someone and we want we worked out that it couldn't have been one of the players because normally one of the players would do something stupid like that. And we realized it wasn't one of the players because we saw that every single player was getting their socks cut. Or they could have been really smart and cut their own socks one day, but anyway. So we were really sneaky. And because it was the top of the lockers, we managed to set up a little camcorder and just have like some football boots and a little bit of clothes and a few other things just stopping, but we could still see through with the angle. And so one day we went out to train and we put the camera, hit record and just set it where you could see all the lockers. And it turned out it was our sports scientist who was come in and he had, you know, like the the skeleton key, the master key for all the lockers. And he was going around and he literally cut all the socks off it. But honestly, he got battered for it. So we finally found out who it was. But to be able to take something like that after he'd literally done all of his, he just made fools out of all of his. And then finally we got it back when we caught him red-handed. And then there was this thing called the court. It was almost like a kangaroo court every Friday, just for a bit of joking of, you know, who was late, who has to pay fines, all this eventually the manager got the footage and he's like so dave have you been cutting any socks recently he's like what no me not <laughs> anyway and eventually we got up on the big tv big screen exposed him and then he got a kicking <laughs> so yeah but hard hard story it seems like that was a period where sports science and sports psychology wasn't well adopted in terms of the, the players outlook on it so perhaps you guys have been winding him up over the last four to six weeks before he did that <laughs> <laughs> probably and that's the thing they were so powerful that at the time those guys because the coaches were everything whereas now the coaches are just one element of all of the other things that the players need to do and how they do it and and because i'll give you a quick example my first day at spurs 94 we had a coach a physio and a kit man three people i worked as I said as a sports psychologist for two Premier League clubs and whenever I left whenever I decided to stop working in professional football in 2017 for the academy at Crystal Palace we had three coaches with the academy with the under 18 team two physios two sports scientists a strength and conditioning coach a masseur a doctor a nutritionist a kit man and me as the psychologist, 13 different staff for like four, 14 academy players. 
amazing. Just shows the development of where it goes and, and how it's going. But honestly, the reason why I stopped working, why I still don't work in professional football anymore is because I still don't feel it's really gets the kind of the the reward or it doesn't get the value that I think it merits. Because for me, it's the most important thing. It's, you know, there's a four corner model of performance where you have your technical, physical, psychological and social and all those different areas all um, impact on the performance of the player. And this is why all the work I do and, and David mentioned, obviously, that I know you're working with KPMG, that the session I delivered for KPMG earlier in the year, whenever I talk to people who don't have a sporting background, nor do they want a sporting background or any aspirations in sport, but I use that same four corner model of performance to be able to share with them of how to improve their role. Because I'm saying, you know, if you're working at like a KPMG or, or any other professional services firm, if you're at that level, just to have that ability to walk in through the door, you have to have the technical skills, whether that's accredited, you know, chartered, whatever you're working towards. That's the technical skills to do your job. Physically, this is an interesting point. 15, 10 years ago, probably physically, people would say you don't have to be physically fit to do a certain job in an office. But I think the last couple of years of lockdown and the pandemic, I think have really highlighted how important the physical element is of people's well-being and their overall fitness and ability to focus and stay, stay fixed on being able to do the task at hand. And of course you have the psychological or the mental skills ability of, of an individual and their attitude and their mindset to how they do the job and of course the social being able to deal with the pressures and whenever i ask that of let's say 100 people in kpmg or 100 doctors or 100 ceos and my question would be which area of performance is the most important what do you think most people say the large majority of the time the mental or psychological you know because the reason why it's not technical is because everybody's technically equally qualified because if you're an accountant you're an accountant if you're a chartered accountant you're a chartered accountant everybody's a chartered accountant so now my question is what's the greatest differential for performance because this can't be the technical side because everybody's technically qualified so the question normally lends itself to the actual the mindset the attitude of the person doing the job rather than the skill set that they have because you all have the skill set otherwise you wouldn't be working at kpmg i'll tell you that for a fact ah that makes sense like the technical skills is like the the ticket into the organization it's the other three that matter beyond that that makes so much sense one thing that i wanted to ask about those four pillars is i wanted to lean on the social um element of that in terms of football Nowadays, with the focus on psychology within these football academies and within the, the the professional level, how much is a professional footballer guided on their social activities in terms of, because some of these players are getting wads of cash at such a young age where they could go out partying and drinking and drugs and girls and all that stuff. How much involvement would a sports psychologist have in kind of containing that and guiding that? I honestly don't know because I don't work in it. I haven't worked in it for five years. But in my experience, it wasn't a lot in the 20 years I had in football. I would say there's probably more now. There's possibly more now. But I still don't know if it's enough. But also to flip that it's on its head is it's probably going to be determined more by the individual. Because if the individual has that desire 
or wants to do that or their let's say their priority is not to be a professional footballer it's to go out and have a good time then let's be honest whether they had a million pound in the bank or a hundred pound in the bank if their priority is to have a good time they're going to go and spend whatever money they have so the question really is is, is more what's the priority of the individual and what's their framework or their ma- mental map is that just a case of i'm only doing football so i can go out and party or are you doing football because you want to have a long-term career in football and you'll have lots and lots of benefits along the way but i struggle to answer that really just because you it's unless you know the individuals now and, and see what support and guidance they're getting but i'd be very surprised if the premier league clubs now especially as you say with the vast sum of mon- sums of money that some of them and it is a tiny tiny percentage because most people don't tiny percentage of them that they wouldn't also give them the support that would allow the club and this is purely from a selfish point of view from the club the club to look after their asset how did you manage personally the superstardom and the salary of a prof- being a professional footballer was it hard to manage for you or were you so steadfast on that goal of being a premier league footballer that those external distractions weren't at your fingertips in the same way it would be to someone who was doing football for the wrong reasons? I, well, A, I was never a superstar. It's also probably had very an, uh, a very low profile going through my entire career, which is good. I like that because I could do pretty much whatever I wanted and didn't get hassled, you know, the large majority of the time. Whereas I, I probably couldn't think of anything worse of being David Beckham and, and not being able to leave the house or if he walked to the shop or if he went to a park with his kids or whatever he does, does it would just be a hassle, just constantly people harassing you, asking, pulling at you, needing something. So I'm glad that I didn't have that. But also the, the let's say the benefits you get just being in that professional footballing world are very, very difficult to turn down because we're all human. We all like being liked. It's very hard to say no to something that is basically being put on a plate for you and whatever that is whether it's free stuff whether it's entry into places whether it's you know people giving you things it's very hard but there has to be a balance for you and you can definitely lose your way let's put it that way and and i would challenge anyone to be in the scenario be in the situation when all of these things are happening essentially it's been like probably Hollywood actors, you know, nobody says no to you a lot of the time and still have to have some degree of normality, modesty, humility, you know, keeping your feet on the ground. It is, it's incredibly challenging. I thought that I had a, a really good sense of doing it and even I lost my way for a, for a while during my footballing days, but managed to, um, yeah, rein it back in before. <laughs> It all went wrong. Yeah, from reading your book, it didn't seem too overly distress, uh, disastrous, but it did seem like it had an effect. Was it one pre-season where you turned up a bit out of shape because you um, like, kind of enjoyed your summer almost? Yeah, but I think that was actually at the start of my career, and that was just after I made my debut. And again, that was not having an understanding of what I needed to do to be a professional footballer. And again, all of these things that, let's say didn't help me in my career what I find and what I realize now about myself and this is obviously me talking as a much older man is that 
I'm a fast learner and I also learn from pretty much everyone around me. And so I realized that that summer that I made my debut, pretty much thought I'd cracked it and made it after my three games and one goal. Didn't realize it was the last three games and only goal I'd ever scored for Spurs. But it meant that I didn't train enough to go back the following summer and be fit and ready to compete with these top athletes. And because I didn't do that, what I did learn the, the next summer after that and every summer until I retired was that I'm never going to have more than one day off during the summer. And so I ended up coming back fitter every single year, year on year, because we had the statistics of when you left, what fitness levels you were at before you left at the end of the season. And when you come back the following start of the next season after six, seven weeks, I never had more than a day off. And I was always training every time for six, seven weeks, apart from one week off of a complete break. So these are the things you learn and, and I wouldn't do it any other way because as much as my career at Spurs never went anywhere after that, I had a long-term career off the back of being more professional every single summer. I love that aspect of continuous improvement, self-awareness and flipping failure into a lesson. One of the other things that I really appreciate about learning about you, Paul, was uh, when I was reading your book, Paul Lambert describes you as being in the gym earlier than everyone else despite being at the tail end of your career. I think you, you write something along the lines of he could have been disheartened or demotivated. Instead, his attitude was terrific. He was the first into training, often working for a couple of hours in the gym before everyone else arrived. Players like Maka are a manager's dream. I think that was amazing to read. How did you, one, manage to stay motivated during that tail end of your career? And two, how did you know when the right time was to quit? Um, I think that because I I didn't realize it was the tail end of my career. I knew there was there was a, a natural, you know, sort of demise of your physicality, but I was still playing. I still, you know, played 10 games the year we won the league and, and we got promoted in the championship. I still felt fit and healthy and, and able to play. But when to follow up with the second question of when did I know it was the right time to retire, I realized that once we won the league, I was in my second league title in my career. I'd won a trophy at Wembley, played Premier League, I'd played international football, kind of done everything that I set out to do in my career, which again, is that a coincidence that happened by chance? Don't know, probably not. But I also realized that I didn't want to go on. And the longer I played, the more likely I was going to be injured, the more likely I was going to leave football with a with sort of a long-term um, injury or something that was going to hold me back. And I just thought, I've done everything I need to do in football. This is a great opportunity to leave on my terms. And because most people try and cling on to professional football for every single extra season or extra month or extra game, I just thought that's not the way I want to finish my career. And I decided very quickly, yep, 32, great, nearly 20 years. I'm going to move on and start working in this whole field of performance psychology and keynote speaking and corporate training and executive coaching because really that was the passion and that was the golden thread that ran through my entire career from reading that book at 17 all the way through of me learning, developing, doing my degree while I was playing, watching watching different uh, videos and DVDs and listening to tapes and audiobooks and all of these things that I was doing because I love the subject of of mindset and psychology and so because I felt like I'd had enough of all of that it was a perfect time for me to go and transition into this next phase. My favorite aspect of this podcast Paul is that before we hit record I told you some of the lessons that I wanted to pull apart from your book and speak about them 
and high level. But in fact, your whole story and, and demeanor over the last hour has actually covered every single one of the lessons that I wanted to talk about. Whether, whether it was about taking preparation serious, um, having a positive self-image, taking personal responsibility, you've covered them all by sharing your story and your insights and your examples. So I want to speak about what you're doing now. Um, give me a run through of what a corporate may expect to receive if you were to work into their workplace and provide a session for them. Yeah, and, and again, just your question is what we call a leading question. If it was in a courtroom, I'd be objecting to the judge saying leading the witness because if I was going to provide a session, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges I have that I, I need people to know in the corporate world that I don't just deliver a session. It, it is evolved so much over the 12 years that I've been working in this field that I did start off delivering a session and my first ever keynote that I delivered was for Aviva, 150 senior leaders for Aviva and it was on the psychology of leadership. But because the way that the feedback I'd get, whether it was from the MD or HR director or whoever was brought me in, they'd always be engaged in like the subject and the topic and the content. But the follow-up question was always, so what else can you do? <laughs> and my answer, unfortunately, was always, I can do the same thing again for a different audience, but that didn't really work out very well. So what I needed to do was evolve. And then because I ended up obviously working concurrently as a sports psychologist and at Crystal Palace, because it was there for five years. So for instance, my first day at Palace in 2012 was the same as Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who went on to sign for Manchester United for 50 million. So because I had Aaron in his first year, and then, of course, I then move into the second year with him and we work together again. Then I move into his third year and then he's professional and then he goes through. And I'm still working with these guys for five years. So I had to build up a five-year curriculum of what I'm going to develop and deliver for the Crystal Palace players coming through until eventually into the first team. So because my content had just evolved and, and morphed into something so much more than a one-off session, I brought that in into the corporate world. So whenever I was going to deliver a keynote, it was always with the proviso of, okay, I'll do this keynote, but if you want to try and sustain or embed this content or this mindset or framework or philosophy into your organization, well, then how are you going to do that? And I'm let, let me tell you, you're not going to deal with a one-off session. So actually now the, 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 the companies and organizations I'm working with are multinational companies all across the world. And it's more to do with six month, nine month, 12 month programs. You know, everything from taking people away on retreats, doing full conferences, town halls, annual event, executive coaching, mastermind programs, accountability programs, making sure there's an ROI on the investment. It's just, and it's not me. This is the biggest thing that I'm now this little centerpiece of all of these, well, it can only be described as, as experts in their field. They're just incredibly high performers, everything from sport, business, military, academia. And what I do is I bring them together in a way so the company can get the bespoke package that they want because everybody, every company has obviously a different budget, a different need, a different desire, everything from we need you to go and work with 20 of our senior leaders or we need to work with our exco or we need you to develop our graduates, whatever it happens to be. But some things, sometimes it'll be on performance, sometimes it'll just be on development. Sometimes it'll be about retention, how do we retain our best people? So it really depends what the company wants. And ultimately, then we put and design the package of what that company needs. 
Well, Paul, that sounds fantastic. I know I could benefit from that as an apprentice. I know some of the role models that I looked up to at work could benefit with that kind of comprehensive transformational journey. I'll add all the links in the show notes below. If anyone has a senior position at a corporate, they can reach out to Paul or click on the links below. I want to ask one final question, Paul, before we wrap up. Given your illustrious career and then your academia thereafter, if you could go back to young Maka, who's just been scouted for the first time, what is one psychological tool that you would give him? Probably reframing. So reframing is essentially giving a new meaning to an outcome or an event that historically you might have given a meaning that wasn't always helpful or constructive. So for instance, when I was released from Spurs at 21, of course, I felt my world had completely collapsed and crumbled. And I didn't realize that actually it wasn't the fact that Spurs released me or that George Graham released me. That was not the issue. The issue was my response or my reaction to being released. And reframing is essentially instead of me, you know, beating myself up, thinking I'm not good enough, thinking I'm not worthy, thinking, you know, why me? Why does this always go wrong for me? To reframe it in a way that thinking, okay, how can I learn from this so that I can improve myself going forward? Or what can I do differently at my next club so that I don't get released? Or so that I have a way of improving? And as you mentioned the phrase earlier, that continuous improvement going forward is probably the greatest skill that I've learned over the last 28 years of working in this high performance environment. Paul, I love that concept of reframe. I, I think not only young Paul McVeigh would benefit from that, but all the young people listening to this podcast and older people listening to this podcast, it's such a universal lesson to end up on. I really, really appreciate the hour plus that we've had together, Paul. I've never spoken to a Premier League player, never mind having them on my podcast. <laughs> you're, a, you're a hero to so many. Um, where can the people find you online? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. The, the one of the the best ways that I connect with people is definitely on LinkedIn. That is that just seems to be a, uh, an amazing platform for me to be able to share and and speak with people all around the world um, that I do every single day. And then of course just on my on my website, just paulmcveigh.com. It's uh, it's just about to have a uh, have a revamp. So if you go on it now, you'll probably see the one's been there for maybe two years or so, but. I'm hoping in the next in the next week or two, or or definitely by the time this podcast is has gone public, then then it will be the new new site will be up there. So definitely come and check it out, paulmcrae.com, and of course you can download my book from there as well. This has been such a laugh, such an insight. Thanks for your time and thanks for your generosity, Paul. My pleasure, David. Thanks very much for having me, and good luck. <laughs>